Bible and open with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start reading today in verse 32, but we're spending our time here today in light of it being the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted uh, Church. And after the sermon, like Gary said, we'll uh, join in a season of prayer for the persecuted, and my hope is that this uh, message uh, gives you much to pray through for yourself and for the persecuted. I do want to clarify a few things, however, uh, because uh, sometimes the subject of persecution is, is tricky, uh, because Christians aren't the only ones who experience religious persecution, and they're not the only ones with a theology of martyrdom to advance its message. And I think the recent events with groups like ISIS and Boko Haram have made that clear for all of us. So I want to be careful with what we're talking about uh, today. The first clarification is that the persecution I have in mind is the ridicule and violence that rises against a Christian for pursuing what honors Jesus as Lord. We're not talking about persecution for being American. We're talking about the suffering one encounters for belonging to Jesus. The Bible calls this suffering for righteousness' sake or persecution for the sake of Jesus' name. A second clarification. In an age of increasing terrorism, where there's a growing pattern of religious martyrdom, like suicidal bombings in the name of radical Islam, I should clarify that Christian martyrdom is not the pursuit of death, and it does not take the lives of others to advance its message. Christians pursue love, even when that means somebody else takes your life. Church history will sadly sometimes prove otherwise. But biblical Christianity doesn't take life to advance the gospel. It offers life even when our enemies crucify us for it. A third clarification is that we can have a tendency to think of the persecuted church as an entity besides us. You know, it's something in Pakistan or Afghanistan or Laos or the rest of the non-Western world. Just not here. But if you belong to Jesus, then you belong to our persecuted brothers and sisters. You share in the blessings of the same gospel. You share in the same spirit. You share in the same mission. And so in the same way that Jesus left heaven... To identify with your flesh for your good, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 commands us like this Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So we identify with their sufferings and their tears and their loneliness, and we care for them because they are part of us. Which leads to one final clarification. 
When we look in just a moment at Hebrews 10, we're not doing so merely for the persecuted church out there. We're looking at Hebrews 10 to understand Christianity, period. Normal Christianity includes opposition from a world hostile to Jesus. Hebrews 10 is not a picture of a radical form of Christianity versus a more quaint form of Christianity. Hebrews 10 is a picture of Christianity, period, in its radical treasuring of Jesus. And this sermon is to prepare you to suffer. It's like the Pastor Richard Wormbrand said, it's too late to prepare for suffering when the communists put you in prison. Nobody resists who hasn't forsaken the pleasures of this world beforehand. So this is to prepare you for suffering. So with that in mind, let's turn now to our passage. And I'll begin reading in verse uh, 32. It says, But recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's talking about Jesus there. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father, I pray that you would use this word to help us treasure the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that in treasuring this better and lasting possession, we might give it all up. Let it all go to see his people loved and more people saved and his name exalted among the nations. In Christ we pray. Amen. So to this point, the writer of Hebrews has spent a lot of time unpacking the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need a new Adam. The world we live in is a wreck because of the first Adam's sin. And Jesus Christ is our new Adam. He comes to make the world right again. This is chapter 2. We need a faithful king to defeat our greatest enemies of sin, death, and the devil 
And Jesus Christ is that king. God, because he has raised Jesus to his right hand, is now putting all his enemies beneath his feet as we speak. That's chapter 1 and chapter 10. We need a priest to represent us and to take away our sins and to restore our broken relationship with God. And Jesus Christ is that priest. The sacrifice he offered on the cross reconciles us to God. Chapter 7 to 9. The writer of Hebrews unpacks the person and work of Jesus like this. But another thing he does is fill his letter with exhortations and warnings to keep the church clinging to Jesus. He knows the teaching of Jesus that only the one who endures till the end will be saved. He says that much in verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. No endurance, no reception of the promise. He knows these things. He feels the severe consequences of letting go of Christ, which is why he's so serious when he looks into the life of this church and sees them wavering. You remember a kid, you're on the monkey bars and your fingers getting tired and one by one they start breaking loose. This is what's happening to the church in their grip on Jesus. It's starting to give way. And part of it's because of their own apathy. In several places we see that they're growing passive in their walk with Christ. Lazy in their fight against sin. They're not devoting themselves to the meat of the word. They're drifting away from the gospel. They're coasting with the comforts of their affluent society. They're apathetic. That's part of it. The other part of it is because of persecution. Enemies are doing terrible things to them to try to persuade them to let go of Christ. Maybe things like I read about this week. Soldiers beating your children bloody to get you to forsake Christ. Uh, men putting starving rats in your jail cell at night so you can't sleep. Uh, prison guards using excrement as jelly on your toast in the morning. And that's all the food you get the rest of the day. So there's internal passivity loosening their grip and external persecution telling them, just let go of Jesus already and we'll stop treating you this way. And you can see him throughout his letter addressing both sides of the problem. And you can see him doing it in our passage. He, he addresses the internal passivity. For instance, verse 32. Recall the former days. You know, don't just sit there and sulk. Use your mind. Engage your remembrance of how Jesus is faithful to you. 
Or verse 35, don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. You can feel him pleading with the church to come out of your apathy and engage in proactive, passionate pursuit of Christ. And then he also addresses the external persecution. But I want you to see the way he does it. He's just finished warning them severely in verses 26 to 31. Essentially, he's, he just told them, don't spurn the Son of God and go to hell. And then he says in verse 32, but. That's an important contrast there. But. It's his pastoral way of coming in after a firm and severe warning to come in and say, but I know that's not true of you. I know that's not true of you, brothers and sisters. You don't want to spurn the Son of God and go to hell. You know why? I've seen your endurance before, is what he's saying. And I want you to join me in in recalling those days because those days had a treasure at their center and I don't want you to let go of the treasure that's at the center. So what did those former days include? That he wants them to remember. They include a lot of suffering for the church and a better possession in their sights. A lot of suffering for the church and a better possession in their sights. And I want to take those one at a time and then see how the two are related. So to begin, we see a lot of suffering for the church. Verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, he's speaking about their conversion, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So conversion to Christianity doesn't mean security in the world. It means suffering in the world. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. There's a word picture here. It's it's like he's saying, you got in the arena with sufferings and you put up a great fight. You got in the cage with sufferings and you put up a great fight. The sufferings even came at them in different forms. For instance, we see personal, various forms of personal suffering. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Reproach has to do with verbal abuse, insults. Maybe an example would be uh, the crowds who crucified Jesus and and the thieves that are crucified with Jesus. It's, uh, Matthew 27 says that they reviled Jesus. You know, they're wagging their heads at him and, and, and mocking him. Uh, the other word, affliction, has more to do with different kinds of physical abuse, like imprisonment. We see that here in chapter 13. Uh, beatings with rods. We see that in the Apostle Paul's Uh, ministry, depriving individuals of of basic necessities like good shelter and and food. I read some of uh, Richard Wormbrand's book this week, Tortured for Christ, and and read of how his persecutors would, would leave him out in the cold until, you know, within seconds of death. Then they'd pull him back in, thaw him out, put him back in, in the cold to freeze to death, bring him back in, thaw him out all night long depriving him of 
shelter, and other things like this. And then we also see partnership sufferings. This is suffering that rises because you choose to identify publicly with the others in your church who are suffering. Look at the end of verse 33. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Then he explains in verse 34 what he's talking about. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So let's get this by pretending together for a moment. Let's just say that things keep going south in our society and a few folks in this church end up in jail. And you know they're lonely. And you know you find out they're not being fed either. That's where you were in the first century. You don't, jail's Government didn't feed you. The family fed you by going and visiting them. You find out they're hungry and you feel the pain with them, right? You, when, you, when, you, when one part of you suffers, you all suffer. We feel their pain and their hunger and their loneliness and we want to show compassion. We want to go visit Dale and Julia when they're in prison. But you know that if you go public with your partnership, people are going to find out and they're probably going to make your life miserable. Maybe they don't put you in jail, but they start plundering your property. When you hear plundering your property, don't just think they stole your wallet out of your car or smashed your iPhone or they bypassed your identity theft protection. When you hear plundering your property, think confiscating all your belongings, sending you into a life of poverty where nobody else wants to hire you except for unjust purposes. And there's no filing for unemployment and no Social Security. That's the cost these Christians were facing as they became partners with those in prison. This isn't changing your Facebook icon to identify with someone. Partnership means losing your face. Please take note of this kind of compassion. Ready to give it all up if it means taking my sister a sandwich in jail. Or sitting and praying for a few minutes with my brother behind bars. It's compassion that says, you know, that... That guy got under my skin sometimes in care group. But I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus to him, even if it means a Molotov cocktail sails through my kid's window tonight. That's the idea here with the plundering of your possessions in the path of compassion. But even that's not giving enough credit to the remarkable grace at work in the lives of these believers. And I think one word makes all the difference. The word joyfully. 
You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the blundering of your property. This is where we start to see the better possession in their sights. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I read over this passage with a couple of brothers this past Tuesday. And when I finished, one of them looked up broken and said, Man, I get mad when somebody steals my parking spot. I had to admit, yeah. I'm right there with you, convicted and in need of grace. We get upset when things are taken away from us and taken from us, not because we're sharing the gospel with a lost world, just taken from us. We get upset when things don't go the way we wanted them to go, even when it has Nothing to do with our Christian interaction with the world. That is way, way, way far removed from what this passage is teaching us that Christianity is and that discipleship is. This joy points us to a supremely valuable possession. This passage isn't just pressing us into a life where we don't get mad about that kind of stuff anymore. It isn't even pressing us into a life that merely puts up with loss because of our faith. It presses us into a life that, to quote Jesus, rejoices when others say all kinds of evil about you. It presses us into a life that sings when you're released from prison and beaten and told to shut up. That's Acts chapter 5. It presses us into a life that, as it says here, joyfully accepts the plundering of our property. This is basic Christianity. And I want to be like this. And I know you want to be like this. I've talked with some of you. you. You see where you are in relation to this passage. It exposes where your true treasures really lie. That's what God's Word does. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the intentions of our heart. You can look at this and see where you need to be and where you need to grow and what you need to give up. And But I have to say this. We won't get anywhere unless we have the same treasure that these people have. And that takes conversion. That takes conversion, according to verse 32, after you were enlightened. The only way that you can joyfully accept the plundering of your property is if you know that you have another possession that's worth way, 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 way more than your stuff. The joyful acceptance of loss comes when a superior possession is in our sights and treasured in our hearts. That's the cause of their joy in verse 34. If you ask, how does anybody joyfully accept the plundering of their property in the path of compassion? The end of verse 34 gives us the answer. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession 
and an abiding one. Joy in suffering loss comes only when you know that you have a better possession that trumps all other possessions. It's not saying the losses we experience won't in some ways grieve you, but it is saying the losses will be incomparable to the joy that you have in the better and abiding possession. You see, this joy here that they're experiencing, this joy says something about the superior value of this better and abiding possession. It's saying it's He's, he's so valuable, it's so valuable that you can still sing from fullness even when everything in this world has been stripped from you. I want that kind of possession. So what is this superior joy producing in the face of suffering type of possession? What is it? The writer of Hebrews tells us what the better and abiding possession is. And I'm going to summarize it for you and then show you where I got it. The possession that dwarfs all other possessions is this. Jesus Christ in God's presence in His unshakable kingdom. Jesus Christ in God's presence in His unshakable kingdom. This word, better, it's a better possession It's already been uh, applied to the person and work of Jesus throughout uh, the the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1 says that Jesus has a, a better name than all of the angels in heaven. Chapter 7 and 12 tells us that he gives us a better hope by giving us access to God because His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That better word is forgiveness. Forgiveness of your sins. Jesus establishes a better covenant for His people who will participate in a better resurrection and then go on to live in a better country. This is chapter 11. All throughout, Jesus and His work is at the heart of everything that is better. So I take Jesus to be at the heart of this better and and abiding possession. And when we possess Jesus, then by faith, Jesus then brings us right into God's most holy presence. That's been impossible for the human race ever since Adam sinned. We're all dead and separated from God, but now Jesus does it for us. He brings us into God's presence. Look at chapter 6. Verses 19 to 20. Chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Remember behind the curtain where the most the Holy of Holies is. It's where God's presence dwells and it's giving us this picture in when Christ made His sacrifice that he, and He walks into the heavenly temple, into the Holy of Holies. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He entered God's presence as a forerunner and being a forerunner means what? You've got other runners coming behind you. 
Chapter 2, verse 10 says that Jesus is bringing with him many sons to glory. You can put in there, and sisters, and daughters. So we inherit Jesus, and he's bringing all his saints into God's presence with him because of what he's done. And then to top it off, we enjoy Jesus in God's presence in a kingdom where we can never lose him. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 to 28. At that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know why the kingdom of God can't be shaken? Because He's its designer, He's the architect, He's the builder. We got this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You're a builder in here? This is a fantastic passage to share the gospel with your coworkers. Nice little segue into Hebrews 11:10. Hey, you're doing a good job nailing that. Hey, let me tell you about another kingdom. It's better than what you're doing. Right? Just throw it out there. See what happens. The kingdom of God, its designer and builder is God. God is infinite in wisdom and knowledge and power. And when he builds something, it lasts. It can't be shaken. That's that's not true of worldly kingdoms. They can be shaken. Read history. God's kingdom can't be shaken. And if his kingdom can't be shaken, then the rest that you find in that kingdom can't be shaken. And the joy that you find in that kingdom can't be shaken. And the riches of that kingdom can't be shaken. And the peace in that kingdom can't be shaken. And your relationship with God can't be shaken. Nothing about it can be shaken. And that's where we we, we need to be. That's where we want to be, isn't it? This, too, is part of the possession. The superior possession is Jesus Christ in God's presence in His unshakable kingdom. When you have this better and abiding possession, the comforts of this present age can't hold you in bondage. Freedom to spend the bulk of your life kicking back with ESPN and Netflix while people are perishing around you is not true freedom, America. Living for a job so you can support your hobbies and your bucket list till you die is not true freedom, America. That's bondage to possessions that are way, way, way inferior to Jesus Christ. As C.S. Lewis once put it, we're far too easily pleased. When the possessions of this world control you, that is, they excite you too much when you accumulate them, 
or they suck away your joy when they're taken from you, or they keep you from obeying Jesus' commands, that's not freedom, it's bondage. Freedom to live and to show compassion comes when the superior treasure in Jesus Christ arrests your soul such that when the threats rise of stripping all these Western comforts away from you, you sing. Alleluia. All I have is Christ. It's when the superior treasure in Jesus so arrests your soul that when you set Christ up against the cost of visiting your brother in prison, it's easy. I'm going. I'm going to see Dale and Julia in prison. I don't care what happens in my house. Only one possession truly matters. And that is Jesus Christ. Write this down. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. I have to footnote my wife in that one. I was trying to explain this passage to the kids last night. She's like... It's kind of like this. That would have been a whole lot easier. I'll just say that tomorrow and sit down. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to please consider Jesus. Stop looking at the church, pick up a Bible, and read of him. And see his beauty. And see his worth and his holiness and his power and his value. The Bible says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He died to bring you into God's presence and he rose from the dead to establish an unshakable kingdom. Don't find your sense of worth and your meaning in life in stuff. Shakeable stuff in your job, in your money, in your fancy yard, in your kids, in your sports. Those things are all made and they will be shaken. Find everything in the person of Jesus. And that goes for all of us, not just our, Christ, our non Christian friends. We too must understand that only one possession truly matters in life. Don't put too much value on the wrong things, things that can be shaken. Invest yourself in the better possession of Jesus Christ and His unshakable kingdom. Let the sufferings of this present age shake off your attachments to this world. And let them all, even when that suffering comes from the hands of your enemies or it comes from cancer, you let the sufferings remind you of the greater treasure and the greater possession that you have in Jesus. Saturate your mind with the Bible so that you're not deceived by sin in this world that will tell you otherwise. 
If you want to prepare yourself for suffering, treasure the person of Jesus. He is more than enough. Make yourself so rich in Christ that you have everything to give for the sake of others. That's my only call to you this morning. Make yourself rich in Christ. Every way that you can, make yourself rich in Christ. Pour over His Word, study Him together, declare His excellencies, soak in His truth, sing His songs, keep a vision of His glory in front of you, walk with Him in prayer, live so your kids see He is everything to you. Say these kinds of things to each other. Don't throw away your confidence, sister. You have need of endurance, right? Say these things to each other. He is too precious to let go of. He's the only possession that matters, and he'll be enough for us when we suffer loss. So I'll close with a story that Richard Wormbrand also tells in Tortured for Christ, and, and then we'll pray together for ourselves, that, our own, that the Lord would change our own hearts to treasure Christ like this, and then we'll pray especially for the persecuted church that they will cling to Christ as their better and abiding possession. Anyway, the story goes like this. He says, uh, one of our workers in the underground church was a young girl. So you've got to think, this is communist Romania. Uh, no longer that way. But this is, so he's writing it in that, in that day. One of our, our workers in the underground church was a young girl. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her, but to make the arrest as agonizing and painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly the door burst open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed. They roughly put the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved and she kissed the chains. And she said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel that he has presented me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew what happens to young Christian girls in the hands of communist guards. Her bridegroom faithfully waited for her. After five years, she was released, a destroyed, broken woman looking 30 years older. She said it was the least she could do for her Christ. Such beautiful Christians are in the underground church. And I want to say... Such beautiful Christians will be in this church too when we are treasuring Jesus Christ.
I've walked with you, some of you, for ten years now. And you're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So let's pray for this sort of beauty to characterize us. Let's pray that God change our hearts to treasure Christ above all. And when He's beautiful to us, then we too will sing in the midst of persecution. And let's pray especially for those who are persecuted that they would keep clinging to Jesus. Pray for their perseverance and strength to love and for help in treasuring Jesus amidst suffering loss. Let's pray that they will continue to consider Jesus who for the joy set before Him endured this cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's do that now in clusters of about four to six people. Um, Use the blue insert as a prayer guide, and then take the blue prayer guide home and put it on your refrigerator or in your journal or whatever, and pray for the persecuted church once a week or so. Make it part of your routine. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to participate but I'd encourage you at least share with someone during this time. And if you're a member, talk to them about Christ and the gospel. But let's take 15 minutes to pray together and then Wes will come close us at the end.